first book I ever bought with my own money was a book of true ghost stories throughout history. It cost a whole 75 cents from the scholastic book lady at my elementary school. Are you sure you want to read this? I remember her asking. It's pretty scary. And she was right. There was one story in particular about a German submarine that was both cursed and haunted that has stayed with me my whole life. The story was memorable enough, but it was the illustration that accompanied the story that seared into my mind. A charcoal drawing of the prow of a submarine from the perspective of a sailor standing about 20 feet back around the middle of the sub. We see the black night sky reflected in a vast, fog-shrouded ocean. We feel a sense of utter isolation. An empty, lonely void where the submarine is the only solid thing our sanity can hold onto amid the black nothingness above and below. But even that reassurance is gone, because on the very prow of the submarine we clearly see something that shouldn't, couldn't possibly exist. And yet there it is. Unmistakable. Unnatural. Terrifying. My name is Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller, and this is The Cursed German U-Boat, the one-year anniversary episode in my monthly podcast, Hysteria. It's history that lurks below. As the first salvos in what became World War I were launched, the Unterseeboots, literally undersea boats or U-boats, of the Imperial German Navy were limited to short-range defense of German ports and coasts. That's because early submarines couldn't travel far or stay underwater longer than two hours. They were considered really cool for a navy to have, but impractical in big battles at sea. Everyone believed the upcoming naval battles would be fought with massive destroyer ships like the British HMS Dreadnought and its sisters. The German Navy was a puny joke compared to that of the British. The Germans had no time to build ships equal to such stupendous leviathans as the Dreadnought, so instead German engineers focused their efforts on improving submarine technology. And German engineering succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Proven in September of 1914, when Germany's new U-21 submarine sank the HMS Pathfinder, followed by the U-9 sub sinking three British battleships in a single hour. Overjoyed, Kaiser Wilhelm II immediately ordered hundreds of new submarines to be built as fast as possible. Maritime warfare was forever changed, and so did the tide of World War I. Scared of losing their hugely expensive battleships to these new U-boats, the Brits kept their leviathans in safe waters, while sending flotillas of smaller vessels to block German supply chains in the North Sea. In response, the Kaiser did the unthinkable. He unleashed his new pack of sea wolves on unarmed civilian merchant ships from even neutral nations, with orders to fire torpedoes with no warning against all international laws of the sea unrestricted submarine warfare. The Emperor's German U-boats prowled the North Sea, English Channel, and Eastern Mediterranean, terrorizing every ship, every boat, every sailor. There was no defense against a threat that was unseen, unheard, and undetectable at the time. Sailors would think themselves safe, no enemy ships in sight. 
and the next second their ship would erupt in fiery destruction because a hidden German U-boat sent torpedoes arrowing toward their unsuspecting victim with no warning whatsoever. In less than a year, hundreds of innocent ships were blown sky-high and sunk with few or no survivors. Their victims included hospital ships and passenger cruise liners like the Lusitania. By the end of World War I, the 340 U-boats of the German Navy had successfully sent an estimated 5,000 ships to the bottom of the sea. The Germans had transformed the insignificant submarine into the absolute weapon of war. doomed UB-65 submarine was one of a class of 24 built at the Vulkanwerk shipyard in Hamburg, Germany in the urgent rush after the initial U-boat successes. The Type UB-3 model was bigger, faster, more technologically advanced than its predecessors, carrying 10 torpedoes, a deck gun, and a crew of 37 with a range of 9,000 nautical miles. Its construction was plagued by an unusual number of freak accidents and gruesome deaths. These were officially put down as caused by human error, but no other U-boats under construction had anywhere near the number of fatal accidents, and human error couldn't explain away all the bizarre incidents that dogged this particular submarine. The dock workers and crew began to mutter among themselves another reason for the run of bad luck. The UB-65, they whispered was cursed. The first incident took place as the hull was being laid. The massive solid steel piece weighing several tons was being lowered into place suspended by heavy chains. Without warning it either slipped from its chains or a link inexplicably snapped. History is unclear about how it happened, but somehow the huge hull segment plummeted onto the dock workers below, instantly crushing one man into pulp, the other dying after two hours of agony, pinned to the dock as friends tried futilely to save him. The incident was put down as worker carelessness. After all, accidents happen when speed is given more importance than safety. But as sailor superstition goes, for a ship's hull to cause two deaths was the worst of all possible omens. A sailor serving on a U-boat during World War I had an even lower survival rate than soldiers in the frontline trenches. Hastily built, the U-boats were treacherous tin cans that broke down frequently. And once the sub was submerged, if anything went wrong, there were no life rafts, no diving gear, no hope of escape. A special cause for concern were the diesel gasoline tanks and dry cell batteries that powered those early submarines. The gas they emitted could build up under poor ventilation and explode. And if even a single drop of seawater ever got into the batteries, clouds of poison chlorine gas would fill the submarine and the crew would suffocate to death from blood and other fluid filling their lungs. The dry cell batteries were housed directly beneath the crew's living quarters. So it wasn't entirely unheard of when, during a routine test of the UB-65's dry cell batteries, the newly built engine room suddenly flooded with deadly diesel fumes. The three engineers in that tiny enclosed space were quickly overcome by the noxious cloud. By the time they could be safely dragged out, 
all three were dead of asphyxiation. But what was mysterious was when the post-inspection analysis determined that the equipment was all in perfect working order. No rational cause for the fatal fumes could be determined. So while tragic, these accidents were nonetheless written off as human error. What happened next, however, was more difficult to explain away. On a trial run of the UB-65 seaworthiness, a sudden wave rose up out of nowhere to knock a crew member right off the deck. Like the hand of a sea god, it dragged him overboard before he could even scream, swallowed by the wave, never to be seen again. Six mysterious deaths, all on the same U-boat? That's when the whispers began that the UB-65 was cursed. The UB-65's first ever test dive resulted in a submarine crew's worst nightmare. The dive was to have leveled out at 30 feet, but strangely, a forward ballast tank fractured, causing the sub to free fall to the bottom of the sea. They were trapped with no hope of rescue as the crew frantically worked to repair the submarine. Even worse, at the 11-hour mark, seawater crept into the batteries, and toxic chlorine gas fumes slowly filled the entire 180-foot-long steel cylinder death trap. The crew desperately worked on even as they became violently ill. The UB-65 would have become their coffin, but miraculously, after 12 hours of sheer hell on the seabed, the engines fired up and the submarine rose to the surface. A miracle! And yet, two crewmen later died in the hospital from the poison gas. The curse's tally now stood at eight. The UB-65 was commissioned on August 18, 1917, under the command of Captain Lieutenant Martin Schell. Only 30 years old, yet he had already been decorated with the prestigious Iron Cross First Class for courage in battle. One of his first acts was to ruthlessly squelch all whispers of a sinister curse infesting his ship. Superstitious nonsense it was. As if to mock the new captain for his naivete, the curse struck again in its most malicious and bloodthirsty attack yet. As dockhands were loading the torpedoes for its maiden voyage, one of the warheads inexplicably exploded, instantly killing nine men and injuring nine others. One of those killed was the second officer, Lieutenant Richter, who had been supervising the loading from the gangplank. Despite this freak accident, the pressure to launch more U-boats into action was so high that they hastily made repairs and sent the UB-65 out on her first mission. We could only imagine the relief of the dock workers when they saw the UB-65 finally sail away from the harbor at last, the curse riding invisibly within. But the curse was not the only invisible passenger lurking among the crew of the luckless UB-65. One clear, moonlit night, the sub was patrolling the English Channel near Cornwall for enemy ships. They were sailing on the surface, but all the hatches were battened down and secured, ready to submerge at a moment's notice. A lookout was stationed on the ship's conning tower. This is the raised platform on top of the submarine. The sea was smooth as glass, reflecting the endless black void of the sky, shrouded with creeping fog. 
It was as if they were sailing through dark nothingness, with the submarine the only solid thing for a man's sanity to grip onto. But the lookout was familiar with this eerie, isolated sight. It was his job to hunt the pitch-black horizon for a tiny glow of enemy ship lights, their prey. Yet as the lookout dropped the spyglass momentarily to rest his eyes, he was surprised to see a lone figure standing on the foredeck, barely thirty feet away. This man wore a German officer's long overcoat and hat, gazing out to sea with his arms crossed before him, legs braced wide. Even stranger than having a man on deck with no way to have gotten there, the lookout realized that there was a slight blue glow surrounding the mysterious officer more than could be explained by just moonlight limning his outline. Suddenly, the strange officer turned and faced up toward the conning tower and seemed to shout a soundless warning, and in that moment, the horrified lookout recognized the officer as Lieutenant Richter, the man who had died in the torpedo accident days before. The lookout screamed in terror, and the lieutenant's ghost vanished off the deck. Capitan Lieutenant Shell was furious. Now his crew is saying that their sub was not only cursed, but haunted too? This was not to be tolerated. He imposed heavy punishments on any man who dared speak a word of this superstitious bunk. But days later, a panicked crewman ran from the deck, screaming that he had seen Richter casually strolling topside. The captain rushed out, only to find his duty officer cowering in stark terror by the conning tower. Sobbing in fear, the officer confirmed the other's story and furthermore said the dead Richter had hovered above where the gangplank would be if they had been docked, then paused to look out over the sea before disappearing into thin air. Richter had been standing on the gangplank when the exploding torpedo killed him. Lieutenant Richter didn't confide himself to the deck. His ghost also roamed the darkened, claustrophobic passages below. Not long after that traumatic second sighting, another officer saw a shadowy figure enter the torpedo room, but on inspection, no one was there. Then an engineer saw the dead Richter in the engine room, leaning over as if inspecting the instrument panels before fading away. And one crewman swore he witnessed the ghost materialize just a few feet in front of him, then walk straight through a massive steel bulkhead into the engine room. But the most haunted crewman was a torpedo gunner. The dead man appeared to the gunner again and again and again for several nights in a row. The encounters drove him mad with terror. Ranting and screaming, he lunged to open the hatch in a desperate attempt to escape the submarine, even though they were submerged. His fellow crewmen had to wrestle him down and tie him up while the ship's doctor administered a generous shot of morphine to calm the man down. That seemed to do the trick. But hours later, as the U-boat surfaced for ventilation, the gunner tore free of his bonds, frantically scrambled out to the upper deck, then threw himself overboard, sinking like a stone. His body was never found. Now the crew was far more afraid of the spectral phantom than any harsh discipline the captain could give. Captain Lieutenant Shell was thoroughly disgusted that these ridiculous rumors of ghosts and curses had run amok through his crew and even the educated officers. But his opinion drastically changed one stormy night. 
Typically, submarines stay submerged during storms, preferring the eerie, unchanging silence of the deep than the chaotic tempest above. But the captain ordered the sub to surface in order to confirm a possible enemy sighting from the periscope. As a crewman carefully lifted a hatch just a crack to scan the horizon, he was shocked, then terrified, to see a man standing at the very aft of the ship. The lone figure seemed oblivious to the heavily rolling pitch of the vessel in the rough waters or the powerful waves crashing over the deck. Instead, he stood, arms crossed, as if the water was smooth, the seas calm. The frightened crewman shouted down to the captain, The ghost is on deck! Angry and determined to see for himself, Shell rushed up to the hatch, peered out, and saw the figure. Just then it turned and looked back up at the conning tower, and the captain instantly recognized the face of his dead second lieutenant Richter. With his own eyes, before the ghost vanished in a geysering spray of salt water as a wave crashed over the deck, the captain slammed the hatch shut and the whole crew went into a mad panic. When they completed their tour of duty, the entire crew applied for reassignment. Some simply deserted. Morale was shaken to the core, and stories of the cursed and haunted U-boat swept among the Kaiser's Imperial Navy, despite threats to the crew about keeping their mouths shut. While in dry dock for repairs, the German High Command took steps to counter what they saw as wild rumors. They had a Lutheran minister conduct an exorcism of the UB-65. They needed every single U-boat in action, especially now that the British had developed a new bomb called a depth charge. Before this, the only way a fully submerged submarine could be harmed by the enemy was if a ship accidentally rammed into them. These depth charges could be dropped or planted as floating mines and had destroyed and sunk dozens of U-boats with all hands. The Germans weren't going to allow spooky children's stories from putting a perfectly good submarine to use. So on June 30th, 1918, after the exorcism and a declaration that both the curse and the ghost have been banished, the UB-65 set out on what was to be her last patrol, because neither the curse or the ghost were gone, merely dormant within the confining steel body of the UB-65, biding its time before its ultimate act of malice. In July 1918, the United States Navy submarine, the L-2, based out of Bantry Bay and commanded by Captain Forster, was patrolling off the southern point of Ireland at Periscope Death. He spotted what first appeared to be a buoy rolling in the swell. Moving closer, he discovered that it was actually a German submarine, listing heavily in the water, seemingly disabled. This find was an amazing stroke of good luck for the Americans. Submarines are sitting ducks on the surface, wide open to attack. Immediately, Captain Forster ordered his sub to maneuver into position to line up a torpedo shot. He could see through the periscope that the aft hatches were open, likely to ventilate the sub. There was no sign of any activity on deck of the German vessel, but hold on. Just then, Captain Forster spotted a lone German officer in his long overcoat and hat, standing at the prow of the U-boat, arms crossed, gazing far into the distance. A millisecond later, the unknown German submarine exploded. In a spectacular-
spectacular rain of fire, debris, and water. It rose up on its bow, then slid under the churning waves one last time to its eternal watery grave. The Americans never fired a shot, nor were there any ships around that could have caused the explosion. Bewildered, Captain Forster immediately surfaced his sub to try to rescue any survivors, but the waves were empty. All that was left of the doomed U-boat was the sonar sound of small propellers and an underwater signaling device. Soon they too fell silent, and the German U-boat designated the UB-65, its last reported known position off the southern point of Ireland, never returned to its home port again. The jinxed and haunted German U-boat UB-65 stands to this day as one of the greatest unexplained mysteries of the deep. Its history is true, and yet so much of it has been fogged by myths and exaggerations that it's difficult to strain fact from fiction. We know most of its original haunting from the writings of one Hector Charles Bywater. He was a brilliant World War I spy, war journalist, and famed naval strategist. His command of the German language let him pass as a native behind enemy lines, particularly in the naval port cities. He wrote of the haunted U-boat in his book detailing his wartime spy adventures, entitled Their Secret Purposes, printed in 1932. He claimed his primary source for the cursed U-boat was a man who had deserted from the German Imperial Navy after being on the UB-65's first tour of duty. However, decades later, in 1974, Fate magazine featured an article on the haunted U-boat which brought it to national attention in the United States. Unfortunately, the article also added a lot of fake names and extra deaths to lend juicy flair and supernatural thrills to the true history. I've done my best to stick only to the events and people that I can determine to be authentic, but it wasn't the easy research assignment that I thought it would be. <sighs> The actual World War I German UB-65 submarine had quite a successful career during its short life. Under the command of Captain Lieutenant Schell between its first recorded kill on October 31, 1917, until July 14, 1918, the UB-65 sank six merchant ships plus the HMS Arbutus of the Royal Navy and seriously crippled six other ships, taking them out of active commission. The UB-65 was officially declared lost with all 37 hands sometime between July 10th and the 14th, coinciding with the sinking of a Portuguese vessel, the Maria Jose. The Maria Jose was officially recorded as the UB-65's last strike, and the sub must have somehow been severely damaged in that raid. The official explanation for the UB-65's mysterious explosion was put down as an underwater mine or an accidental explosion of one of its own torpedoes. But official records could never explain away the true, unnatural events and ghostly encounters that stalked the UB-65. What was it about that particular U-boat that made it such a magnet for unexplained malevolence? Was it all just sailors' yarns and the tin can technology that went into the manufacture of early submarines, slapped together at shipyards where worker safety came dead last in importance? Or was there indeed some sinister, supernatural force pervading deep in the twisted iron bowels of that submarine? It was born in the forges of hell to wreck hell upon Germany's enemies. Did some enigmatic being turn that hell back on its creators in the form of a curse? And a more important question, 
was that terrible cloud of evil dispelled in the sub's final destruction. My research shows that the curse is still alive, still active, still thirsting for blood. In 2004, the BBC television show Wreck Detectives mounted an expedition to survey a previously unidentified U-boat wreck off the coast of Southern Ireland at a depth of 184 feet. They were able to positively identify it as the missing UB-65. It lies in its watery grave, upright and fairly intact. The aft hatches are indeed open, as Captain Forster had noted in his report to the U.S. Navy 100 years ago. There are signs of minor external damage around the bow section near the torpedo tubes, consistent with that of a munitions explosion, like an underwater mine or depth charge. But the tubes themselves are intact and undamaged, so much for the official cause of demise as being from its own torpedo. Overall, the external damage is not very significant, but the thunderous shockwave of a nearby underwater mine or depth charge might well have caused enough internal damage to make systems fail and the tin can construction to spring a leak. But without going inside the wreck, it's impossible to confirm this theory from just an external investigation. Today, the wreck of the UB-65 is considered an excellent, though very challenging, dive beyond the capabilities of most divers. Only the best divers are advised to even attempt it. One of England's best was Philip Durbin from Somerset, England. Age 62, he owned a charming country bed and breakfast inn that looks right out of a Jane Austen novel. In August 2014, he and fellow experienced divers went to explore the wreck of the cursed UB-65. They marveled at the 100-year-old relic and peered down the conning tower where they could still see the antique controls. On his way back up, Philip Durbin started having serious difficulty breathing. His diving buddies shared their breathing equipment with him, but nothing helped. He was unconscious by the time he was lifted onto the boat, and though quickly airlifted to the nearby hospital, he was pronounced dead on arrival. The coroner's report showed that Durbin had died from gas entering his bloodstream after his lungs ruptured due to pressure changes. And here I quote, but as to why that had occurred can only be a matter of speculation, end quote. We can't help but remember those long-ago dock workers who had also died of asphyxiation from gas in a strikingly similar manner. And like them, Durbin's pressure-regulated diving equipment was reported to have been in good working order after the dive. The wreck of the UB-65 is now designated as a protected site with a no-touch policy. And the death toll for the cursed German UB-65 submarine stands at 56 and counting. Stay tuned after the credits for a special spooky little coda on the mysterious death of Hector Charles Bywater, the brilliant spy who first reported on the cursed German U-boat. Hysteria is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's Ghost Storyteller. Like my podcast? then click the subscribe or follow button to automatically get new free episodes once a month. Won't you also take a sec to give Hysteria a five-star rating and maybe write a quick review? Nothing epic, just like, hey, this podcast is really good, or this is so cool. These little things you could do are important in getting Hysteria listed in Apple Podcasts and Google Play as a featured podcast. Thank you for these little things you could do to help me achieve it. Want to help more? Great! 
You could help me create more episodes of Hysteria for as little as $1 a month as my artistic sponsor, or as a one-time donor starting at just $2. It's easy and safe. I've included links in the notes for this episode. Or just go to hysteria.com and click the Send Diane a Tip link. Then choose to give either a monthly sponsorship on patreon.com or a one-time donation on PayPal. I gratefully welcome and appreciate every dollar. Very special thanks this month to Hysteria supporter Michael W. of Aurora, Illinois. Your one-time donation was wonderful and came through when my spirits were at their lowest. You are the best. And now, as promised, here's a special little mystery I came across in my research on the cursed UB-65 submarine. Hector Charles Bywater was a brilliant naval military strategist as well as a Navy journalist and spy. In addition to his daring undercover work at German naval ports in World War I, he single-handedly averted an attempted German bombing on the docks of New York City in 1915 after being sent to investigate suspicious activity there. But perhaps his most earth-shattering work was his analysis of Imperial Japan's warlike intentions for naval dominance in the Pacific. In his book, The Great Pacific War, Bywater wrote in great detail about the epic conflict between the United States and Japan, about Japan's surprise aerial bombing on the largest concentration of U.S. battleships in the Pacific, their obsessive drive to win the decisive battle, and the United States' unique campaign of island hopping to victory. Bywater's book was so astonishingly detailed, it was like a history text describing the entire step-by-step naval strategy for the Pacific theater during World War II. Except Bywater published his book in 1925, 16 years before the war. Stranger still, his book was published as a fiction novel. He prophesied with an eerily uncanny accuracy nearly every single strategic move that Japan and the United States made a decade and a half later, when his imaginary war became all too real. Hector Charles Bywater never lived to see his fictional musings come horribly true. One year before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Bywater was mysteriously found dead of undetermined causes. No autopsy was ever performed. Had his death been murder? There is some speculation that it indeed was. After all, Bywater was an exceptionally gifted naval military strategist who had studied Pacific nations after World War I. It's logical to assume he merely used his own sound analytical theories in a fiction novel. So sound, in fact that when it was published in 1925, Bywater's imaginative tale became required reading at the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. An attaché at that embassy was Isoruku Yamamoto, who later became the Imperial Admiral, the mastermind behind the Japanese naval strategy in World War II. Was Bywater's fictional novel actually the origin of Yamamoto's strategy for the surprise bombing of Pearl Harbor and Japan's domination of the Pacific? Did Yamamoto send assassins to kill the oracle who had predicted every step Japan would take? If so, Yamamoto must have skipped the last chapter, the one that predicted America's eventual victory in a final, fiery cataclysm on the island of Japan itself. Thank you, dear podcast listener, for tuning in to Hysteria. It's history that lurks below. <laughs>